Hi everyone, welcome back to um, part two of week six lectures on um, intersections uh, with motherhood. So in this part of the lecture, I'm going to identify this um, framework or approach of intersectionality within the institution of motherhood and parenting. The theory of intersectionality provides insights into the daily lives of parents and mothers, as well as fathers, um, particularly the barriers, obstacles, and disadvantages that some parents confront when caring for their children, and which also includes the right to parent in the first place. In particular, motherhood is a highly political concept that, um, that we're going to explore further within this framework of intersectionality. A helpful metaphor that Romero, 2017, has used to explain the barriers, obstacles, and disadvantages that some parents confront is that of a Rubik's Cube. A Rubik's Cube has six faces, each covered by nine stickers. This visual of six, six solid colors, um, white, red, blue, orange, green, and yellow, arranged in various combinations in which each face turns independently to mix up the colors, helps in conceptualizing these different intersections. A Rubik's Cube may be useful to conceptualize the rotating mix of identities and shifting systems of domination, like mentioned before, race, class, gender, sexuality, ethnicity, age, etc., which result in certain social identities being more salient than others uh, at any given time and place. A Rubik's Cube doesn't capture the fluidity of systems of domination, but it you can think of it as a useful, um, a visual, a useful visual of the multiple layers of domination and the intersections of systems of oppression. A Rubik's Cube can also be used to demonstrate the ways in which sociologists use an intersectional approach to analyze the social dynamics of multiple identities interacting with social hierarchies or stratification. Although lived experiences are not static like a Rubik's Cube, Analysis requires sociologists to identify social identities and the interaction between different systems of inequality that a Rubik's Cube can metaphorically illustrate. While in reality, systems of inequality are not limited uh, to the five or six colors, whatever it is, of a Rubik's Cube, each of these different colors um, can, does repre or can represent a var various system that intersect to create different dimensions of an individual's personhood. They are all social identities that can increase privilege or disadvantages and position one's access to opportunities. Our position in various social settings determine the system of inequality we face and the intersection of individual statuses. So combinations, why, th why this is important is that combinations of race, class, gender, sexuality, citizenship, age, and many others play a critical role within the institution of the family um, and the role of motherhood in parenting. For example, race, class, gender, and sexuality differences have real consequences in people's lived experiences in terms of life chances for acquiring access to healthy food, quality education, um, excellent health care, and housing, all, all, of these, all of which provide a safe environment. 
If parents can if parents can afford to live in affluent neighbors neighborhoods, they are likely to have local grocery stores that can carry fresh fruits and vegetables. Others um, others live in what are termed food deserts, where frequently they shop at corner stores because there are no local grocery stores, um, and these corner stores tend to not have fresh produce. Increasingly, the working poor um, are isolated to poor neighborhoods, lack personal, personal vehicles, um, maybe face inadequate public transportation to get to shopping centers to purchase necessities like food, whereas affluent neighborhoods like we've um, seen, seen in previous uh, weeks, um, the schools receive more funding, that they uh, get higher um, teachers with more experience, uh, have the latest computer and science technology to offer students. They often have college preparatory um, curriculum and provide course materials that confirm their white privilege. Upper and middle class parents are able to access good health and dental care and do not experience the inefficiencies in the healthcare system. The working poor tend to find access or their access to healthcare is often limited to overcrowded um, emergency rooms or clinics. So understanding parenting childhood and mother through a lens of mothering motherhood through a lens of intersectionality presents more nuanced understanding of social inequalities. Intersectionality makes visible the dynamics of privilege, um, subjugation, and changing circumstances. For example, an African-American father driving his daughter to private school before heading to his office on Wall Street will probably not encounter the sexism or racism or classism that an African-American mother faces while taking her daughter on the subway to an inner-city charter school before heading to her job within a service delivery sector. Race cannot explain this difference. Gender alone cannot describe the circumstances, nor can class. Being an upper middle class black father is not the same racial experience as being a working class black mother. In addition, they share these two um, people, this, this experience, they would share other social positions, um, such as being a citizen, a non-disabled person, among others. Looking more specifically at parenting and motherhood, in considering the range of differences in parenting, it is important to keep in mind the prevailing ideology of parenting is that of motherhood. The prevailing ideology of motherhood is the gendered middle-class model of intensive or competitive mothering, which involves tremendous amounts of time and energy. Some call it hel helicopter mothering. This approach, this ideal, this ideology of motherhood um, advocates child-centered living, emotionally demanding time and activity, and labor and intensive and financially draining methods of, of parenting. For the remainder of this um, part of the podcast, we're going to look at the readings you were assigned this week. All three of the articles we looked at this week illustrate intersections of race, class, and gender. Um, and illustrate how these intersections create vastly diverse experiences um, within families, um, including motherhood and parenting. 
While gender is often approached within a one-dimensional framework, as uh, we, I mentioned earlier, so for instance, the impact of gender on incomes or earnings, these readings that you were assigned illustrate the limita limitations of this one-dimensional approach within um, the experience of mothering and parenting and um, families in general. Motherhood looks vastly different for different groups of women across the United States and Canada. In particular, the articles we looked at illustrate a long history of different groups of women in Canada and the United States being excluded from the domain of motherhood through specific legal policies as well as deplorable social conditions that um, deter, from, deter women from the experience of motherhood. The first article that we looked at today was a chapter in Angel Angela Davis's 1983 book um, titled Women, Race, and Class. Although this book is um, dated, it, does, it provides insight into the feminist agenda of volunteer, voluntary motherhood and the birth control movement and how this um, predominantly white, white liberal feminist fight intersected with race and class. Um, particularly in the federally forced or federal federally funded forced sterilization of women in color that um, was widespread until the late 1970s. As noted in the article, when 19th century feminists raised the demand for voluntary motherhood, the, the campaign for birth control was born. The voluntary motherhood movement was considered outlandish and radical by its oppressors. This movement maintained that women had the right to abstain from sexual intercourse within marriage, that women were not property of their husbands, and that husbands had no right to the custody of the women's person. The voluntary motherhood movement was promoted as a means for controlling pregnancies, thereby leading to women's political equality. The idea being that if women were always burdened by childbirth and frequent miscarriages, that they would hardly be able to exercise the political rights or explore careers and other paths of self-development outside of marriage and motherhood. Ultimately, voluntary motherhood was, a was framed as a necessary precursor to political and economic autonomy. In the 1970s, a century later, the birth control movement in the United States was born, was born with birth control and abortions um, similarly discussed uh, as just as radical by opposers. Birth control, be it individual choice, contraception, and abortions are, can be discussed as or should be considered fundamental prerequisites for the emancipation of women since the right to birth control is obviously advantageous to women of all classes and races. In theory, women's groups could unite even vastly dissimilar women around this issue. However, as Davis explained, like the voluntary motherhood movement of the 19th century, the birth control movement did not succeed the birth control movement of the 70s did not succeed in uniting women of different social backgrounds, particularly because movement leaders failed to popularize or even acknowledge the genuine concerns of working class and racialized women. 
In fact, arguments advanced by voluntary motherhood advocates in the 19th century and the birth control advocates of the 20th century have often been based on blatantly racist premises. So, although the progressive potential of birth control is indisputable, that is, birth control and the idea of choice surrounding motherhood are um, central areas of concern, in actuality, the historical record of this movement illustrates racism and class exploitation surrounding the intersectional topic of motherhood. In the 1970s, birth control movements and abortion rights campaigns experienced a major victory in that abortions were declared legal. As Davis explains, the ranks of the abortion rights campaign did not include substantial numbers of women of color. When questions were raised about the, this absence within the campaign, two explanations were commonly proposed by white leaders. First, that women of color were overburdened by their people's fight against racism. And second, that they had not become conscious of conscious of the centrality of sexism because um, they were preoccupied by racism. That was the, the um, explanation that was given. However, the reality is that the reasons for black women and other women of color's absences were historically rooted in the ideological underpinnings of the birth control movement itself. It wasn't that black women and other women of color did not believe in women's right to choose, but that their experiences for wanting access to birth control or abortions were very different from the white women who were spearheading the birth control movement of the 1970s, which included um, the idea or the desire to not be tied down to pub to private family spirit spheres to have a career and lives and identities outside of motherhood in reality black women have been aborting themselves since the earliest days of slavery with many women refusing to bring children into a world of forced labor where physical and sexual abuse for women were the everyday conditions of life these abortions were not about empowerment, but were acts of desperation motivated by the oppressive conditions of slavery. So stories of black women's abortions were less about their desire to be free of their pregnancy and more about the miserable social conditions which dissuaded them from bringing new lives into this world. And it was these social conditions that prohibited them from actually being mothers to the children that they born. Most of these women, no doubt, would have expressed deep resentment had someone um, held their abortions as a stepping stone towards freedom. During the early abortion rights campaign, it was too frequently assumed that legal abortions provided a viable alternative to the myriad of problems posed by poverty, as if having fewer children could create more jobs, higher wages, better schools, etc., etc., However, the campaign often failed to provide a voice for women who wanted the right to illegal abortions while deploring the social conditions that prohibited them from bearing more children. Instead of listening to these experiences of deplorable conditions, the birth control movement tended to vilify racialized and poor women as unfit for motherhood, with um, abortions and birth control presented as a uh, pre presented by white feminists as a method of population control. Since the 1970s, or since the 19th century rather, voluntary um, 
women's women's reproductive rights, including voluntary motherhood, birth control, and the legalization of abortions, have been tied to racist and classist ideology, um, particularly ideas of eugenics and prohibiting pregnancies among those who were deemed unfit. During the first decade of the 20th century, the rising popularity of the eugenics movement began to coincide with the birth control movement. By 1919, um, the eugenic influence on birth control was unmistakably clear as sterilization propaganda developed by the federal government began, began circulating and doctors began promoting or forcing sterilization on women they deemed unfit, uh, the majority of whom were black. By 1932, at least 26 states had passed compulsory sterilization laws, and thousands of women who were deemed unfit persons had already been surgically prevented from reproducing. Further, by 1939, a plan for targeting black women um, for sterilization was created and enforced in an effort for population control or to limit the black population. The forced sterilization of black women and other women deemed unfit by white standards con continued virtually unquestioned through um, federally funded means until the case of the forced sterilization of the Ralph sisters broke by the media in 1973, leading to revelations of sterilization abuse and the complicity of the federal government in this abuse since the 1930s. The relationship between the birth control movement and, the, and eugenics ideas robbed the birth control movement of its progressive potential by advocating for people of color not the individual right to birth control, but rather the racist um, strategy of population control. With this in mind, it is no wonder why black women were not active in the abortion or um, birth control rights movements of the 1970s, and it provides a picture of the complexity of uh, the experience of motherhood among black women. All right, the next article we're going to look at is by Nilicia, published in 2011. Nilicia looks at uh, employer and domestic worker relationship and sheds some light on how, or we can look at her work to understand how ideas of mothering and care work have resulted in the exclusion of domestic workers from legal and regulatory systems within Canada as well as the United States. As Nilissa, as well as the Davis article illustrate, domestic care work by black women and immigrant women have been essential to um, the capitalist system as well as to the liberal white feminist movement. Melissa produces a telling example of the state of domestic workers in the United States in the, um, in the early 90s. In 1993, Zoe Baird, President Clinton's nomination for Attorney General, hired an undocumented immigrant woman to provide care for her child. The way feminist response um, the feminist response to this uh, finding was to criticize the double standard, that being that male nominees were never questioned about their child care arrangements. Black and immigrant domestic workers and their struggles never entered the public debate. Lillian Codero, the nanny working for Zoe Bird, was immediately deported with no protest, no protest from white feminists. 
So this example that the article provides brings to light several things. First, it illustrates the normalization and naturalization of care work by black and brown women. Since the early enslavement of black peoples in the United States, black and brown women have been forced or coursed uh, due to lack of options and deplorable social conditions into caring for white children. Domestic labor as well as agricultural labor has therefore has historical roots in slavery, colonization, and genocide. Early in the history of the United States, domestic workers became attached to slavery and servitude, creating a system in which women became divided along race and class lines so that middle and upper class women benefited from the continual subjugation of black women as domestic workers. Today, domestic workers are primarily immigrant women of color. This, this shift from poor black women or um, enslaved black women to immigrant women has been relatively unquestioned uh, and normalized or naturalized. So stemming from this normalization, this um, 1993 example also illustrates that the white liberal feminist agenda of political, economic, and, so and social emancipation of white middle class and upper class women has rested on the backs of black and brown women. At the time, unquestioned by the white feminist movement, which has um, continues to regularly be unquestioned. While white women were fighting for emancipation from the private sphere, that domestic labor did not go anywhere. It didn't just disappear. And evidence has illustrated that um, men were not expected to pick up the slack, as this example illustrates. Rather, white women, um, there was a shift where white women became the supervisors of black and immigrant domestic workers, something that, like I mentioned, is historically rooted in slavery. The long history of complicity of white women is evident currently in the muted response of white feminists to the plight of domestic workers and white women's acceptance of their role as supervisors of domestic workers. Finally, this 1993 example illustrates the overall dehumanization of immigrant domestic workers as um, Lillian was never even, or the plight of immigrant domestic workers was never even discussed. While it is true that women, or while it is true that um, women are expected to account for childcare while men may not be, the oppressive experience of immigrant women never came under fire within this example, illustrating um, processes of naturalization and dehumanization. Domestic work overall is, is a global and generally unregulated industry. Capitalist economies like the United States and Canada rely on a steady supply of immigrant women workers who labor with little to no protections under the law. For instance, domestic workers as well as agriculture workers were excluded from the definition of, of employee under um, the U.S. National Labor Relations Act of 1935 and the Social Security Act of 19, 1935. Further, domestic workers were excluded from the protections of Occupational Safety and Health Act. These exclusions within legal structures upheld and um, replicate 
white supremacy and reproduce white privilege between white employees and their children on the one hand and black and immigrant domestic workers on the other. Under capitalist and patriarchal structures, the reproduction of labor, so the activities that are necessary to nurture and regenerate, nurture future workers and regenerate the current workforce, um, became unpaid women's work, separated from the market and unrecognized as work by legal regulatory structures. The social construction of the private, private versus public sphere is essential to the subjugation of domestic workers, something that uh, was codified into law with regulatory schemes protecting the private sphere of the white employer, not the immigrant women's um, not the immigrant women as domestic workers. Thus, the discussion surrounding the need for childcare became a private problem and solution, as opposed to a public problem with a public solution, such as government-subsidized childcare. Enslaved black women and immigrant domestic workers, worker women today, were not and are not currently judged by how well they raise their own children. In fact, that these women have their own children to care for is generally erased from mainstream consciousness. Rather, enslaved black women were judged by how well they raised white children, a sentiment that reflects contemporary expectations of immigrant domestic worker women. All right, the last article we looked at was by Mackenzie et al. Uh, Mackenzie examined the systemic system of state removal of indigenous children in Canada which further illustrates um, the diversity of the experience of motherhood related to intersectionality, particularly intersections of race, class, and gender. This article um, illustrates the long history of robbing Indigenous women, as well as men, of the opportunity to parent their own children. So the over-involvement of the Canadian welfare system in Indigenous communities and families has been well established over the last 30 years. This system reflects a, a continuity of removal between the residential school system, the 60s scoop, and contemporary child welfare in Canada today. To illustrate um, this, in 2004, Blackstock estimated that three times more Indigenous children were in the current care of the state than were in residential schools during its peak enrollment period of the 1940s. Colonial interventions have purposefully undermined Indigenous political, economic, and family formations throughout history. The forced relocation of Indigenous children to residential schools is is recognized as one of the most devastating policies um, for Indigenous communities, affecting not only the survivors of the school, but also survivors' families and communities across multiple generations. As the federal government began phasing out residential schools after the Second World War, the state-led apprehension of Indigenous children shifted and took a new form throughout the 1960s and into the 1980s of child welfare workers removing Indigenous children from their home and placing them within non-Indigenous foster and adoptive um, parent homes. This period has been come to be known as the 60s scoop. Past and present colonial violence directly contributes to the intersecting issues facing Indigenous peoples. 
In particular, Indigenous families continue to be treated differently than other non-Indigenous children by child welfare services in Canada and other white settler states like New Zealand and the United States. Analysis of 2008 data showed that First Nation families um, were investigated on average 4.2 times more often by child welfare than non-Indigenous families. Cases involving First Nations children were more likely to be substantiated, more likely to remain open, and children were more likely to, to be placed in out-of-home care than children of family who are not, families who are not First Nations. Yet, even though this um, disproportionate issue is evident, in Canada, dominant discourses continue to frame poverty uh, and child welfare as an individual failing rather than a socio-historical issue deeply rooted in um, Canadians institu Canadian institutions. Mainstream and kind of commonsensical discourses tend to frame Indigenous peoples and communities as inherently problem-prone, uh, which in turn shapes many service providers' assumptions about Indigenous mothers and families, often, um, often including stereotyping, discrimination, and erroneous judgments by service provi providers, which can, in fact, or and does lead to an avoidance of healthcare and other services by Indigenous peoples. Further, child welfare and in turn parenting of Indigenous children are often framed within Western frameworks of, or approached as a method of understanding within Western frameworks of risk assessment, which are founded on Eurocentric norms that fail to account for a socio-cultural, historical, or local um, community context. In this, in this sense, social environmental factors like these socio-historical conditions that place families at risk are transformed into individual risks. So there is um, an erasure of this socio-historical socio context and conditions um, with mainstream and common discourses focusing on individualized ideas of risk. This type of risk assessment does not recognize how historical and current colonial processes place Indigenous families at risk of violence, poverty, and other challenges. For instance, because of colonial policies, Indigenous families are more likely to have low incomes and live in unstable or insecure housing, two factors that are statistically linked um, to, to neglect and child welfare involvement. Therefore, Indigenous children are more likely to be deemed at higher risk from their parents than non-Indigenous children, um, non-Indigenous children counterparts. As well, colonial stereotypes of Indigenous communities continue to circulate in Euro-Canadian society. As such, what this means is that overall Indigenous children are more likely to be flagged at risk by child welfare workers in than Euro-Canadian children who families are, whose families are dealing with the same or similar conditions. This, this um, Eurocentric or Western idea focus on Western ideas of risk within child, well, child welfare practices conflict with holistic Indigenous views of wellness, child rearing, family, community, and um, 
Many organizations resist this narrow view of risk, grounding their policies and practices in indigenous community values and realities, even though um, federally funded child welfare tends to erase or ignore um, indigenous views of wellness. Similar to Western de definitions of risk and risk assessment frameworks, child welfare policies also tend to reflect Euro-Canadian notions of family and children's best interests, which tend to exist in contrast with Indigenous relational understandings of family and community. Okay, so we'll, um, we're going to look more at um, Indigenous Canadian relations next week, I believe. Um, but just to kind of summarize, although the articles we looked at today were not necessarily situated within discussions of motherhood, they illustrated some of the varying contexts that, that define women's experiences of mothering and parenting generally across Canada and the United States as an intersectional experience. These articles show the importance of approaching the experiences that women have, like motherhood, through an intersectional framework that recognizes how various social locations like gender, race, and class intersect to shape experience and produce diverse and complex systems of stratification. In terms of motherhood, the ideology of motherhood um, represents a white heteronormative middle class upper middle to upper class ideal with all other mothering um, and women measured in relation to this ideology however this image of the white mother has been re reproduced over time through the labor of black and immigrant women and the denial of rights of, of indigenous women to mother all right so that's all we're going to look at today I will see you all in class.